our seats. Well, good morning and, uh, and welcome to Redeeming Grace Church. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And it is good to be with you today as it is every Sunday. Just this gift of grace that God gives to us to be with one another, to remind us uh, that we're not in this alone. This journey, this race that we're running together as we uh, fight for joy and seek to walk by faith. So it's good to see you today, those of you that are here in person and those that are gathered online. Uh, it is good just to be uh, with one another. And so as we begin uh, today, we're going to have God's word read. And Jack's going to be reading our scripture, our sermon text this morning. Christ, my advocate, our advocate, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the first proportionation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him. We keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not to him, but whoever keeps his word in him truly. The love of God is perfect. By witness, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Amen. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy are you, God, our Lord Almighty. God, you're so great and so good. You're transcendent. You're high and lifted up. Yet, God, you've made yourself known to us. You've made yourself known to us through your word, your living and active word. And so God, as we open it now, I pray that you'd open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds to receive what you have for us today. Help us by the power of your spirit to take what we get out of your word today and to go out of this place living and loving differently because of what we hear. And God, we pray that you'd guide us now by your spirit as we walk through these verses that would encourage our hearts, that it bring conviction where necessary, and it help us to see how great your grace really, really is. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, Northern Virginia is a, an interesting place to live. Some of you have lived your whole life here. Some of you are new to the area. But there's some things that you see and experience here that are unique to this place. For instance, it's not uncommon in Northern Virginia to see a Maserati or a Ferrari on the road. That's not a normal experience for most places. Now, I'm not a car guy, but I was curious about Ferraris. Like, what can they actually do? So I looked up a few of their specs. This picture on the screen here is a 2021 Ferrari 812 GTS, which has a 789 horsepower engine and can go zero to 60 in 2.9 seconds and zero to 124 in 8.3 seconds. Now, if you don't know much about cars, by way of comparison, my minivan. <laughs> That's right. Listen to this. Can go zero to 60 in 8.3 seconds. The same amount of time it takes that Ferrari to go 124 miles an hour. But here's the thing. When is a Ferrari in Northern Virginia 
ever going to have the chance to go 124 miles per hour, let alone in 8.3 seconds. I mean, this car has so much power, so much ability, but in this area, it's going to spend most of its time going 25 to 40 miles per hour, <laughs> along with every other Accord and Corolla and RAV4 and my minivan. You know, there's so much power in these cars, but it often goes unused. It, its full potential isn't realized. You know, sometimes I wonder if that's true for us in our understanding of the gospel of grace. Perhaps we know the good news of what Jesus has done and what he's accomplished on the cross, but we don't really know and realize and utilize the full power, the full potential of it in our own lives. For those of us who are already followers of Jesus, I wonder if we at times understand what Jesus has done, but it's really more in an intellectual way. We could write it down on paper. We know the specs of the gospel, but our understanding is anemic. And so it doesn't really affect our, our worship. It doesn't affect our daily living or our relationships, whether that be with God or with others. I wonder for those of you that are not yet followers of Christ, if there's times when you might think that you know what Christians believe about Jesus, you think you have some understanding of the gospel, but you've really, really never taken it to heart or taking time to dive in, to think on it, and think about how it might affect your life and your relationships, be it with God or with others. Two weeks ago, we started a new sermon series in the book of 1 John called Life Together. And one of the main goals of this letter that John is writing is to encourage followers of Jesus to do just that, to actually follow Jesus, to follow him in all of life. John's audience was tempted away from truth. They were tempted away from living a faithful life by false teachers, but also just the enticements of the world. So John wants to help them. And to do that, he challenges them in three ways to take stock of their life by helping them think about how they live and how they love and what it is that they actually believe. But before he really gets into this, he grounds them once again in the power of the gospel. Because as we'll see, when we understand the power of the gospel, all its capability, all of its potential of who Jesus is and what he has done and what, he's in, what he is doing, it changes everything for us. It changes everything. It changed it for John's original audience and for you and I as well. And so my hope for you today and for all of us, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey at this moment, is that together we can lean in and unleash the full power of the gospel in our lives, and in the world around us. So let's dive into 1 John 2 this morning, and may God bless the preaching of his word. As you heard Jack read, we, we're just going through six verses today, but in these six verses, there's a whole lot of horsepower. We're going to spend most of our time in verses 1 through 2, or 1 and 2, and then end with 3 through 6, which really serve as kind of a preview of what's to come in this book. And it's in this first section we begin to see the power of the gospel on display. That if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you have power over sin. Look at the beginning of verse 1. John writes, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, little children isn't a pejorative term. He's not seeking to belittle his audience. It's a term of care. He, he loves these people. It's a term of endearment. His pastoral heart is on display. 
And what is it that he tells them? He tells them, I'm writing these things to you so that you do not sin. Sin is rebellion against God. It's rebellion against his good ways. Sin is a, a preoccupation with yourself, where you seek to meet your needs and your wants and your desires above everything else, no matter the cost. It's living as if, as the famous poem Invictus states, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, what John says here, though, may seem like a little bit of a conundrum based off of what we saw last week in our text. Last week, John said, if you say you're without sin, then you're a liar. Now he's saying, I'm writing these things to tell you not to sin. But John isn't contradicting himself. He knows that his audience isn't perfect. He knows that we aren't perfect, but he also genuinely doesn't want them to sin. Why is that? Why does he say this? Because he knows what sin does. It destroys life. It destroys relationships because it's living in a way contrary to God's good design and its end is always death. So John is encouraging them. He's encouraging us to strive for obedience, to strive for holiness. I write these things to you so that you may not sin. That is a right and good exhortation for him to give. But if that's all he wrote, man, that could feel crushing. That could feel crushing in our life because you and I recognize that we can't not sin, even as much as we want to. I mean, if we think about our lives, maybe we're not living our whole entire life in this place of sinfulness, but we know there's those dark pockets of our hearts and our minds, our thinking and our actions that we really struggle with to walk in obedience. Maybe an attitude towards someone. Maybe what we find our joy in and seek our pleasure in. Galatians chapter 5 says that if we're in Christ, we have both this new spirit, this new identity, this new nature, but it's opposed to our flesh. They're at war with one another. So we can understand that this can be difficult and crushing for us if all he tells us is, hey, I don't want you to sin. Maybe some of you today are feeling particularly defeated over a particular sin in your life. Maybe some of you are tempted right now to give up in your fight against it. Maybe some of you find yourself in a place of apathy towards your sin, you're just generally apathetic, kind of have gotten to the place of, I mean, who really cares? Who really cares? If that's you, I'm really glad you're here today because I believe that the Spirit, through the writing of John, wants to unleash the power of the gospel in your life, to renew your thinking, to renew your heart and your soul and refresh you in grace. See, John doesn't want them to sin, but he also doesn't want them or you to be discouraged when they fail, when you fail or falter along the way, but instead, instead to know something absolutely crucial for living the Christian life, to help them, to help us to keep moving forward in the power of the gospel as we are walking out this journey in faith and striving for faithfulness. John writes, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Man, this is amazing news. Amazing news that starts to get to the core of the power of the gospel in your life. He wants you to know you have an advocate. An advocate is someone who speaks on your behalf or speaks in your defense. And listen, the reason you have an advocate, the reason you need an advocate is because you have an accuser who stands before the Father accusing you day and night. 
But here's the thing about Satan's accusations against you. They're all true. He doesn't have to make stuff up about you or me. He has plenty of material to work with. He has plenty of things about you that he could point out that are not glorifying to God. Be it your words or your actions or your thoughts, things you have done, things that you haven't done. And left to yourself, you have no defense before a holy and righteous God. We all stand condemned, but we have an advocate. And our advocate steps in and our advocate steps up on our behalf. And he isn't just anyone. The rest of verse 1 says he is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's righteous. He's perfect in every way. And he speaks on behalf of not a bunch of righteous people, but the unrighteous. You and me. I mean, this is absolutely amazing that Jesus is fulfilling this role of being an advocate. But I don't want us to miss his heart for you in this. We also know from scripture, like places in 1 Timothy chapter 1, that Jesus also is our mediator between God and us, meaning he stands in the middle between us so that we can relate to God. But here, he's our advocate. That's a little different than being a mediator. As an advocate, he doesn't stand in the middle. He isn't detached or distant. He isn't removed or aloof. He steps in and steps up and he identifies with you. If you're standing over here and God the Father's over here, he's not in the middle. He's coming alongside of you, standing next to you and saying, I'm with him. I'm with her. I identify with them. There's a deep solidarity in Jesus being your advocate. In the midst of all of your sin, in the midst of all of your shame. But notice, it doesn't say we will have an advocate, but we have an advocate right now. Dane Ortland in his wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, says this about Jesus being our advocate. His advocacy rises higher than your sin. His advocacy speaks louder than your failures. Brothers and sisters, I want you to grab a hold of this. I I want you to allow it to sink deep into your heart. Because when you understand and rest in the truth that Jesus is your advocate, and he's your advocate, and he's your advocate, and he's your advocate, and he's your advocate. When it sinks into your life, it can help you not to give up when you're struggling with sin, when you find yourself faltering along the way, but instead leads you to run again and again and again to him, the one who is for you, the one who is with you, and the one who will never give up on you or go anywhere. They can help you to keep pressing forward in faith, knowing that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. That he is transforming you from one degree of glory to another. That he is faithful to see you become more and more like him because he's given you this new identity in Christ. And in that, you have been given power over sin in and through Jesus. Now this is part of the power of the gospel that we see on display in this text. This is part of the the horsepower that's on display that we wanna see lived out in our lives and taken to heart that really affects how we live, but it isn't the full power of the gospel yet. We're not out on the open road yet. See, Jesus isn't qualified to be your advocate because he got a degree from a good law school. No, Jesus is qualified to be your advocate because of verse two. Look at verse two. He, meaning Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
When I was in high school, I remember taking a, an SAT prep class. And, and part of this class was learning all kinds of vocabulary words for whatever reason. Like words you're never going to use in real life, but these big words. And I was like, all right, I'm learning some new words. So every once in a while, I'd throw one in the paper, trying to impress my teachers with these big words that I think I kind of know what they mean. Well, John is using a big word here, propitiation. I don't know about you, but that's not a word that comes up in regular conversation. So what, why is he doing that? Is he trying to impress his audience with his theological acumen? No, I don't think so. What I think he's trying to do with this one word is helping his audience, helping us understand this full power, this full capacity of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. But in order for you and I to understand what this word means, we need to understand a little bit more about who we are than about who God is. God is the creator of all things and we are his creatures. He created the entire world and said that it is good. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, decided to rebel against that. They didn't want to be dependent, but independent, believing that they could survive and thrive and go out on their own, believing they could be their own God. And so they rebelled against God. They rebelled against his good ways. Again, that's what we call sin. And the result of that is it created a cosmic fracture in the entirety of the cosmos, but also in our relationship with God. All of us now, when we are born into this world, are born in rebellion against God. All of us have sinned, all of us do sin, and will continue to. And because of that, we fall short of what God demands. And there are consequences for that. Romans chapter 6, Paul says that the consequences for our sin, the consequences for our rebellion of trying to be self-sufficient and independent apart from God is death. Spiritual death, separation from God, physical death. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Wrath, in general, is a display of anger. With God, wrath is his righteous anger toward our sin, towards ungodliness, towards unrighteousness, towards this suppression of truth. God is who he says he is, but oftentimes we try to push that aside and bury it as if it isn't true. So his wrath is on display against that. But man, if we're honest, we don't like to talk about wrath. Maybe we feel uncomfortable with it. And maybe, maybe part of the reason we don't like to talk about wrath is because we tend to think we aren't that bad. Like, why is God so angry with a few little mistakes in my life? But that reveals a misunderstanding of both ourselves and of God. See, God isn't angry and vindictive and out to get you. God is holy. He is set apart. He is perfect in every way. There is nothing evil or wicked. There's no darkness in him at all as we saw last week. He is just as we saw last week. And because of who God is, sin must be dealt with because sin is treason. It can't be swept under the rug. It can't be ignored because then God wouldn't be holy and God wouldn't be just. No, our sin must be paid for. The consequences must be met out. His, so his righteous and just and holy wrath must be satisfied. And I think we actually understand this a bit more than we might let on to. 
when something is done in our world that's wrong or something is done in your life that's wrong, someone wrongs you, there's, a, there's an innate sense of justice that you have. Wrongs should be righted. We, don't, we see things on the news, we see things we experience in life, and we recognize that, we realize that, we don't have to be convinced of it. The problem is we don't always want to apply that sense of justice to ourselves when we do something wrong, especially when it comes to our standing before God. And this is where propitiation comes in. See, propitiation means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. It bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. And in ancient times, the idea of propitiation was a common idea, that a local deity needed to be appeased or cajoled in order to show favor because this local deity was reluctant. He he was fickle. You know, the reality is many religions today still function on this principle, that if I can do enough good things to convince my God to help me or to convince my God to save me, then maybe, maybe he will. And it's not even just in formal religions. I think cultural religion in the world functions in the same way. Man, if I can just act a certain way and do a certain things, then maybe that group of people will accept me. Maybe that group of people will love me. But man, that is not the good news of the gospel. See, our God isn't a reluctant God. He's a rescuing God. Our God doesn't long to condemn, but to redeem Our God doesn't hold grudges, he gives grace. And he rescues and he redeems and he gives grace for all of your sin in and through Jesus. See, what John is declaring is that Jesus doesn't come to offer wishful thinking. Jesus doesn't come because he has really good arguments that he's put together and he's ready to present those before the Father. Jesus doesn't even come to offer propitiation. Jesus is the propitiation for your sin. Listen, you have nothing you can plead before God for his forgiveness, no matter how big or small you think your offense is, because you are not qualified to deal with it. You are not capable of dealing with it on your own. On your own, you and I stand condemned. But the good news of grace, the power of gospel that's on display in this text is that you have a qualified advocate who not only stands up for you, but stands in your place. See, Jesus went to the cross to be a substitute for you. Jesus went to the cross where he was condemned for your sin so that you wouldn't be. John says it's not only for our sin, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, this does not mean that there is universal salvation. What it means is is that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross isn't localized. It wasn't just for the audience that John is writing to. It isn't just for us. It's for people from every tribe, every language, and every nation. Jesus is the Savior of the world like we just sang about. This is the amazing truth of the gospel. It's why it's set apart from every other religion, every other means to be made right with God. God is holy. God is just. But catch this, catch this. What God rightly demands from you, he gives to you. What he demands from you, he gives to you. He is both just and justifier. He isn't fickle. He's full of love. And in love, he sent his son. And his son, Jesus, willingly came to us as one of us to rescue us, not because we deserved it, but because God is full of grace. 
See, through Jesus' death on the cross, your sin is paid for in full, satisfying God's righteous wrath, and your sin is cleansed from you. As far as the east is from the west, writes the psalmist, are your transgressions removed from you. Think about east and west. You start going east around the globe and you never go west. You just keep going east. His point is, it's so far removed, those things are never going to touch again. He's removed it from you because of who Jesus is. He is a qualified advocate because he's the full and final propitiation for your sin. Jesus' advocacy for you, it's not about filing paperwork on your behalf. It's about personally and specifically taking on your sin and your shame and applying his finished work, his shed blood to it, all of it. So think about your life right now. How do you think about Jesus' heart and his attitude toward you when you sin? Is he disgusted? Is he second-guessing his association with you? Is he distancing himself from you? This text resoundingly declares that while he hates sin and hates your sin, he loves you. Everything Satan accuses you of may be true, but Jesus will not let you fend for yourself. But he steps in and he says, he is mine, she is mine. That thing right there, paid for in full. Friends, this isn't about moving your name from the naughty list to the nice list. This is about resurrecting from death to new life. And if you've trusted in Christ, if you've thrown yourself on the mercy and grace of God given to you in and through him, then what is true of you now is that there is no condemnation for you. There's no condemnation for you. No matter what the the lies of the enemy might tell you, what the world around you speak to you, there is no condemnation. You are freed from sin and its power, and it's by the power of the gospel. If we can grasp this, if we can move this from our heads to our hearts and out in our lives, it can revolutionize your life and your relationships when it takes root because you have a confidence not in yourself but in Jesus. You're not in this alone. But if you haven't yet trusted in Jesus who he is and what he's done, if you're still trying to go it alone, John 3.36 says that the wrath of God remains on you. But friend, it doesn't have to be that way. God has made a way for you also to be redeemed and to be reconciled to God, to see your life forgiven and restored. It has nothing to do with your gifts or your ability or your good works. It's all about Jesus. The second verse of the hymn, Jesus Paid It All, which we're going to sing in a few moments, says this. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. Only Jesus can free you from your sin. Only through Jesus can you have power over it. So come to him now in faith to experience that freedom, to experience that power, whether it be for the very first time for the thousandth time in your life. This is the power of the gospel. You have power over sin, but you also, through the power of the gospel, are given the power to obey, which is our second point in our text today and really the focus of the rest of 1 John. Look at verses three through the beginning of verse five. John writes, and by this we know that we have come to know him 
if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. See, Jesus doesn't just rescue you. He isn't just your qualified advocate. He's your king. And he's your Lord who calls you to follow him now. These verses and much of the rest of 1 John challenge us not to see verses 1 and 2 as just getting our ticket to heaven punched. I've got my boarding pass. I'm ready to go whenever that time comes. But until then, I'm just going to kind of live my life however I want to. Do whatever it is that I want to do. No, John wants you to know that you're saved from your sin. But the way that you can know, the way that you can have confidence, the way that you can have assurance isn't by saying, I know him, I know him. It's by living a transformed life. A life that strives to follow the commands of your king, which are always for your good and always for your joy. And this is where I get most concerned for our Christianity, for our faith, that some say they know God, but their lives don't give evidence that that's the case. If an apple tree says it's an apple tree, over and over again, I'm an apple tree, I'm an apple tree, I'm an apple tree, but when you look at its branches, it has oranges on it. It doesn't matter what it says about itself. It's an orange tree. In other words, their claim is contradicted by their conduct. John's point here is that love for God is not expressed in saying the right words. It's living a right life. And knowledge of God isn't about academics or information. It's about relationship. Not just any relationship, but one that deeply affects all of your life, that reorients your heart, that remasters your life. That is the power of the gospel in your life. To save you from your sin, power over your sin, but also giving you the power to obey I mean, you and I were seeking to follow our own way in darkness on a path to death, but God, being rich in mercy, rescued and redeemed us out of that life. He transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son to follow a new master, our risen King Jesus. And when that happened, everything changed for you. You have a new identity. You, you aren't stuck in sin anymore where you aren't able to obey. He's given you the power of the Spirit to walk in obedience now, to pursue holiness and the desire to do that as well. And so obedience isn't the condition of your salvation, it's the result of it. And so John says in the rest of verse 5 and verse 6, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, whoever says he's connected to him, who's with him, ought to Walk in the same way in which he walked. What's he saying here? He's saying if you are truly saved from your sin, you will start to look more and more and more like Jesus. You'll walk and live in the same way in which he did. Jesus who never demanded his own way. Jesus who never said, I have rights and I will always live out my rights. I don't care what they, how they affect anybody else. Jesus who was loving to anyone he encountered, patient with everyone he encountered, kind to all the people around him, who was full of grace and truth. Jesus who came to serve, not to be served. Those are the ways that we walk in the same way in which he walked. All things that John's going to tease out more in this letter. But I don't want us to miss something in this. When when John says this in verses 5 and 6, we can't disconnect it from what he said in verses 1 and 2. I remember a few years ago, 
that I was reading this text, and, and verse 6 really hit me really hard. If you say you are a follower of Jesus, essentially, then you should actually follow Jesus. It's like, yeah, that's right. Let me put on my what would Jesus do bracelet. You ready to go? What would he do? I'm going to do that. But I, I was missing the grace part of it. I was missing the gospel in it. I was missing that Jesus is my advocate. I was missing that he's my propitiation. I was missing that I'm able to walk in obedience because he stands in my place and stands up for me and helps me. And I have the power to do that because of him. We, we can't disconnect what John's going to say in the rest of this letter, what he says in this verse, from what he's already told us in verses 1 and 2. You can now follow Jesus in obedience not because you're strong, not because you're capable, but because Jesus has rescued you and changed you. By grace, you have power over sin, and by that same grace, you have the power to obey. This is the power of the gospel for all who believe. So what do I want you to do with that today? Or tomorrow, when you're hopping back on the computer for work, or you're heading off to class, or you have that meeting on Tuesday that you're dreading, or that encounter with a family member or friend on Wednesday that you're not sure how you're going to engage with, or you're just tired in life, or things with your kids, or your spouse, or your siblings are difficult right now. What, what do I want you to do with this? And more importantly, what does God want you to do? He wants you to follow Jesus. He wants you to keep your eyes fixed on him and walk in step with him. See, some of you have a spiritual Ferrari, but it's never maxing out at its full capacity. Some of you, your spiritual Ferrari is just parked in your garage. You're kind of half in, half out with Jesus, saying like, yeah, I, I need Jesus, but I'm kind of doing this on my own. If that's you, my encouragement to you is to begin by repenting. Repenting afresh and turn to Jesus again in faith. That's the Christian life is one of walking out repentance and faith over and over again because you have the power over sin and the power to obey because of what Christ has done for you. Others of you may struggle with condemnation or having a, an overactive conscience. But listen to me, your accuser has no power. The gospel has power. So come back to the power of the gospel again and again. Be reminded of who Jesus is for you and what that means for you. And for all of us, I want us to respond in worship, not only as we get ready to sing in a few moments, but as we live our life, that as we strive to follow Jesus, we live a worshipful life to find our rest in him, to stay connected and rooted in him, to keep moving forward in faith and faithfulness. I want you to follow Jesus and to encourage others to do the same because you know who Jesus is, your qualified advocate who made an end to all your sin. Brothers and sisters, may the full power of the gospel be unleashed in your life and in our community and in the lives of our neighbors and the nations. Amen. You know, the gathering of the church, as I mentioned at the beginning, is one of the greatest gifts that God has given to us to help us be reminded of this gloriousness of grace to come in from whatever kind of week we've had, month we've had, year we've had, and just to be refreshed in that. We're reminded as we come that we're not in this alone, as we gather to sing of God and sing over one another, as we receive the preaching of the word. But we also get to take communion together with one another as a first application and response to the preaching of the word. So we're going to do that now. If you don't have the communion elements, you can find them at the back on the lower level or along the railing if you're in the balcony. 
Taking of communion is a physical reminder of both the cost of our sin and of the one who paid it all. As we eat the bread, it's a picture of Jesus' body broken for us. As we drink the cup, it's a picture of Jesus' blood shed for us. And so this meal, you should think about this for today, in this moment. This meal compels you to look back at the cross, but it also compels you to look forward to when your risen king will come again to fully and finally finish the good work he's begun in us. So as you eat and drink today, may you be refreshed in the riches of his grace, knowing that even when you fail, even when you falter, you have a qualified advocate who stands with you. And may that compel you to follow after him, striving to walk in his ways in all of life. And for those of you that are not followers of Christ, we would just ask you today not to take communion Because as we take this, this is a a physical testifying that our only hope is in Jesus. So if you haven't yet placed your faith in him, I want to encourage you to do that today. To turn away from your sin and turn to faith in Christ. If you have questions about what it means to know Jesus or follow him, there's a room full of people that love to talk to you about that and walk with you in it. For those of you that will take it, you can go ahead and get the elements out. Church, Jesus' body was broken for you. Together, let's eat now for spiritual refreshment and in remembrance of him.